Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. couple of minutes to talk about 929 and then we'll come into the sources. The first one of which I see now, um, if you like English better than Hebrew, you'll notice that the top line somehow got reversed. So we'll read it left to right. You'll see it when we get there. But 929 is a project that was started in Israel a few years ago. And the basic idea is it's a daily digital Tanakh Yomi project. So five days a week, we have a series of podcasts, articles, um, small videos, short articles, four or five hundred words about a chapter in the Tanakh. And we've been going about it with 929 English in English since July 15th of 2018. We just started the book of Isaiah. Is there a Temple Isaiah here in uh, Phoenix? There are Temple Isaiahs in many places. No Temple Isaiah here. And so every day we have a series of people who, who produce different materials for us, artistic um, Orthodox rabbis, conservative, reform rabbis, reconstructionists, rabbinical students from all different denominations. And the whole idea behind it is that these are our pre-denominational texts, right? They were for all the Jews. It didn't matter how you looked at things. And they apply to us, and we should look at it. I don't care who you think wrote it, when it was written. It's important for all of us to look at it, to understand it, to think about it. And so we're trying to give you various different perspectives of how to study it. We have, um, if anybody is interested, we could talk about it afterwards, or those of you listening over there. We have a number of study groups all over the country. People get together, once a week, once a month, once every two months, once a book, twice a book, and we help provide you with materials for people who want to study in an intimate setting. So we have, if you want to listen in your car at home, or listen in your car, or read on your computer at home, articles about you're intrigued by Elijah, or you're intrigued by the stories of King David. We have lots of fascinating materials there from lots of different people. And if you're interested in starting a group, we're happy to, to help you talk about that. So that's what 929 is, 929 chapters in the Tanakh. We know that the chapters of the Tanakh were not, uh, were, came from the early church fathers, but that's okay. We should embrace it. It doesn't matter. There are 929 chapters, and so uh, it's about a three-and-a-half-year project, and we are... We are, like I said, in the beginning of Isaiah. So we've gone through the five books of Moses and then the early prophets, and it only gets more and more challenging. So if you've ever studied any of those books and you want lots of interesting content about it, we have thousands and thousands of small pieces from people from all over the Jewish community, geographically, philosophically, um, et cetera, et cetera. So what I want to talk about tonight in the first of a series of lectures, yeah, please. It's at uh, 929.org, .il. I don't even know. Uh, you know, I don't even know myself. 929.org, .il. It's funny. But 929.org, .il, it's because it started in Israel. It's, our server is there in Israel. 
But when you go on in here in Phoenix, unless you, your iPhone thinks that you're Israeli, <laughs> it will go to the English web page. So, and I can show that to you. So it's over here. I could pass around my phone. Yeah, please. Who are the original funders? So, <laughs> so uh, it was started in Israel, and a lot of it was from, from, from money in Israel. And then we have funders in the, the US. Some of the bigger names in terms of the funders in Israel, Avichai Foundation and um, the Maimonides Fund out of, out of New York. And I try to stay away from having to raise money when I don't have to, and I'll deal with content. But if you want to make a donation, we're always looking for one. Just joking, I know. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. So. Um, um, the, um, and it's a valid question, very valid question. So I want to talk tonight about uh, a woman, and if you've studied or looked at the book of Joshua, you've heard of her, you know about her, um, and her name is Rachav, and I'm more than happy to have, I just put a few sources down and put 500 sources on the sheet so that we can talk about it and think about it and, and get your input. And I wanted to start with a source about Rachav, which shows where she's held in Jewish life. So if you look on the, the first source on the page, this is from uh, Eicha, it's from uh, Debe Eliyahu Zuta. It's probably like a 10th century compilation of Midrash. It's hard sometimes to figure out exactly when some of these things were, were, were written down or, or where they, they come from. And, it, um, and so if you look, it starts, if you're looking in the Hebrew, on the left. It says, Davar Acher, so my apologies, where it got reversed. Davar Acher, Gedola Tshuva Yoter Menatfila. See, we're reading, read reading left to right, right to left. So it says that repentance is greater than prayer. I thought, you know, part of the prayer, part of the idea of repentance is, is prayer. Last time I checked on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, doesn't matter who you are, where you are, you probably spend a lot of time in shul. There's a lot of praying going on. But here it's just saying that one is better than the other. How do we know this? How do we know that prayer is not as great as repentance? So it says, Shekol shenitpalel Moshe Rabbeinu lo kibel mimenu Eretz Yisrael. Because Moshe prays to God multiple times to ask God to allow him to enter the land of Israel which God, of course, denies, a very difficult story and conversation on its own. And we know it in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, in Dvarim, where Moshe says, right, again, I asked God I, again, and God said, enough, stop, stop asking me, enough. However, but Rachav, the harlot, the prostitute, the zona, her... Shuva was accepted. Now, she wasn't asking to go into Israel. She already lived in Israel. But her repentance, is what it's saying, allowed her to live, to survive, and to be alive past the siege and the destruction of the city of Jericho, of Yericho, which is, of course, the first city that the Jews take when they enter during the first conquest of Israel under the leadership of Joshua under the leadership of Yoshua. And this is quite an amazing statement because one of the things we know about Judaism is we always say Moshe's number one, right? Moshe's the best. There are, you know, there are Midrashim here and there that says Moshe is the greatest prophet of the Jews and the rabbis say he's the greatest prophet of the Jews, but there could be a Gentile who could be a greater prophet than him. The rabbis managed to figure things out, you know, saying statements like that. But generally, 
right? Moshe is Rabbeinu. He is our teacher. So for the Midrash to come and to make a statement that Rachav, right, Hazona is, exemplifies that the how tshuva is greater than tefillah, that repentance is greater than prayer, it shows something about her and about what she did and who she was. Any comments about that? Yes, please. Felix. Question, comment. He said it three times, so I remember. Rachav had something to make Teshuvah for. Did Moses have anything to make Teshuvah for? Uh, everybody. Any, well, we're supposed to think that. However, I can't think of one sin right now that, that Moses committed that's identified in the Torah. So, so... So the, so the one that's the most well-known is, is seemingly is his... We don't know exactly what he did wrong there, but the episode where he's told to speak to the rock and he hits the rock, whether it's the anger that he describes the B'nai Yisrael as being morim, as being rebels, whether it's his hitting the rock instead of talking to the rock. There are other places and allusions where we say that Moshe sins. When God first appears to Moshe, he says, the people aren't going to believe me. And God says, put your hand into your, your coat or whatever it was that he was wearing. And he takes his hand out and it was, it was the second sign that they would listen. And it became... Um, uh, it became a tsara'at, full of, for lack of a better phrase, leprosy. And so the rabbis explained that that was, he spoke lashon harai, spoke ill of the Jewish people, saying that they wouldn't believe him, they wouldn't trust him, and that was a momentary punishment. And then, of course, he put his hand back, and his hand went back to, to regular. So there are places, there are little things here and there that Moshe um, does wrong. The Talmud does say that there are a number of people, a couple of which I remember off the top of my head, I think Binyamin, and Yisha, I think it lists four people that they say never sinned. And Moses is not amongst them. But, you know, uh, yeah. there's also lines in the Talmud, things like, Lo nitna the, the, the Torah was given to, no, it wasn't given to the ministering angels, it was given to the people. None of us are perfect. We're all going to sin. That's okay. Just make sure that it's, we don't do the, the worst of the worst things. So, but a good question. So that's a line in the Talmud. The Talmud says that. Talmud. Yes, the Talmud does, does say that, um, that uh, uh, the person who, the, the Baal Tshuva, the master of repentance, who is able to, he or she, is able to withstand what it was that they did wrong in the past, that that person is, the, is, is greater than the person who has never tasted the Ta'am of Avera. That's usually used as a good excuse to do a good sin. That's not really, but you know, if you, so, okay. So let's look a little bit here. And what we're going to look at is, I just have most of the text of the second chapter of Sefer Yoshua, which is the real story of Rachav. And we'll just talk a little bit about it, anything that comes up. Um, so I'll read unless anybody else wants to take a stab and read themselves. If not, that's fine. Uh, you'll, you'll let me know. Okay. So, what it starts with is, it's the second chapter, and it says, mm-hmm. So Yoshua sends out two spries, he sends them out, I should say, secretly. This is, of course, an interesting thing, because Joshua was one of the 12 spies who was sent out by Moses. That mission didn't go too well. 
This is not a public mission the way it was back then, and then the spies are going to come back, and then we're going to have a whole discussion about whether or not we should go into Israel or not. And therefore, it's done secretly. It's only two. It's not 12. It's done in a completely different fashion. If that's interesting to you, you can look on our 929 webpage for Joshua, the second chapter of it, what we're studying today, and you'll see four or five people who wrote little pieces about that idea. Joshua is one of the spies, the good spies, sending out spies, etc., etc. So they went uh, into the land, and they went into Jericho, and they went to the house of um, a harlot. That word's not used so much anymore. And her name was Rahab, and they slept there. So it's fascinating in many ways that that's the place they ended up. That's the first place they went. And there is a commentary, we'll come back to it later, that says that what Rachav was, was she was an innkeeper. She had a house. You know, when I uh, probably first uh, learned this, maybe when I was in fifth grade in yeshiva, they didn't tell us what a zona was. She was an innkeeper. And in fifth grade, I don't know what you understand or don't understand anyway, but you know, they, that, was what, that was what was said to us. And why'd they go there? Well, right, that's a place where you can be secretive. Right? It's a place where you can be hidden. It's a place where people aren't asking you too many questions. And, uh, and, it's a, and if it was not just an inn, but it is a, a house of the rising sun, then um, you know, there are people always going in and out. There are people who are staying there, and nobody's asking any questions. And so it's a perfect place to go undercover. Nevertheless, if you look at the next verse, it didn't work too well. And the king of Jericho was told, So either they spilled the beans or something happened or they didn't have the currency of Jericho. I don't know what the currency of Jericho was back then. We've all seen Bar Kokhva coins as many thousands of years later. So I don't know what the currency of Jericho was back then. But somehow, you know, despite their, their attempts to stay uh, to stay in secret, uh, word gets to the, all the way to the king that spies are there. So not only uh, did word get out, but word got out as to where these spies were, and the king sends to Rachav immediately, He says, send out these men, bring them to me, because they came to search out the land, meaning they're not just here, because they have male urges. They're not just on the road where they want to do a business deal with us. They are coming to conquer us, and therefore we need to get rid of them. And here we have an amazing moment. Right, so Rachel has three choices here. She can either give them over, she can deny, or she can say, you're right, they were here, but... They've disappeared. And that last one is the one that she cho- chooses. Rachav here acts in an incredible way. Rachav here is hiding foreigners, spies, people who are endangered, and presumably, at least to an extent, risking her own livelihood, her own life by protecting these men. Oftentimes, in the Bible, some of the great heroes are women. If we think to the beginning of... Tamar is a great heroine. 
interesting. Tamar is a parallel in certain ways with it. The ones that I was thinking of, the beginning of the book of Exodus, King Pharaoh, right? We know the story. Pharaoh says, we're going to kill all the boys. And these midwives say, oh, the Jewish women, they, they have their kids so fast. That's not what happened with my kids. You could ask my wife. <laughs> so they, they just come out. We can't, we can't somehow secretly kill the babies. These women are these amazing people of resistance who stand up to the emperor. They stand up to the pharaoh. It says that they will be rewarded. They were had incredible courage and bravery there. And Rachav here is also showing an incredible amount of courage and bravery in taking these men, hiding them, and saying, I don't know where they are. The word vatitzbino is used also. That shorish is used for when Moshe is hidden also. So there is relations over there with the... Um, with that story, but yes, Tamara as, as well is also a story. The prostitute angle is, uh, is there, is a, is a different one. Sir, did you want to say something? I didn't catch your name. Um, sorry, Gary. Hey, Gary. Uh, I think that um, Tamara was betting on a, or I'm sorry, Rachav was betting on a, a group of people that um, she had heard good things about. Yes, so we'll, we'll get there, and I don't even know if I have all of those verses. I think I have some of them, but yes. Rachav here is of the opinion, which, sorry to spill the beans, we'll get there in two minutes or whatever, that, the, that Israel will conquer, and that she's, it's better for her to be on their side than on the side of the king. So she's making a tactical decision, but at the same time, she's making a tactical decision, and she has to play a long game. She's risking that she doesn't get right. there. This is, you know, the, the king of this principality, of this city, whatever it was, of this clan of, of Jericho, could have killed her at any moment. I mean, I don't, again, I don't know the laws of Jericho, but something tells me <laughs> that if you are hiding spies, there's, this, is, this, is, you know, this is not going to go through the, circuit, the different circuit courts in order to determine who's, who, whether or not she has violated the law and what her punishment and penalty could possibly be. Yeah, please. The Exodus story is, is uh, uh, just like in the Exodus, Exodus, we don't know the name of Pharaoh, we don't know the name of the king, but we know the name of the women. Right. We know the, we know the name of the women, and, 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 and she, is, she is for sure the heroine here. Interestingly, the source that I started with talks about her repentance is, is not saying that she's making a tactical decision, which is what is being said in the text here. It paints her as being a righteous woman. It paints her as being somebody who does repentance, not that she was doing it because she wanted to um, continue to live and to, to be alive and to survive the Jewish onslaught, the Israelites' onslaught and conquest of, 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 of Israel, of Canaan, but that's not the way that the Midrash looks at it, which is fine, just pointing it out. But, but repentance is the wrong word. Well, that's the word, again, that's the word used in the Midrash. That's not, well, well. is used in Midrash. Repentance is an odd... Okay, but either right. The, the turning to God is the facing the right direction will be uh, more to the story. Interesting. Interesting in a different de definition of that. So, Okay, let's look on the top of the second page. We'll look at this um, just a little bit more. So now it says, So what she says to them is, now is your chance, now is your opportunity they ran out, they left, and you just chase, send your men to chase after them. She's right, she's creating stories, she's making believe that these men who were here with me, these two Israelites who came to my inn, are, 
have run away and you have the chance to catch them. So she's sending the king's men on a wild goose chase. And she then goes in verse 6, Viola she brings them up to the roof, and she hides them amongst the flax, which she spread out upon the roof. Okay? So this is what she does for these men. And she, at her own peril, at her own risk, she does so. Okay? Anybody want any comments, any thoughts, any ideas? No? Okay. We'll get there. Okay. So we're about to get there. Why don't we read the next verses? Because you're you're getting there. So let's go. So I skip seven and eight, and let's let's go on. So Vatomer al Anashim, and this is what you're exactly what you're saying. She says to the men, Yadati, I know, Kinatan Hashem Lachem God has given you the land, Bechinafla Ematchem Aleinu, and we are terrified of you. We are all melting. And everybody is just melting. We have no hope. Right? She goes, She goes on. She says, we heard all the things. We heard about the, the splitting of the Red Sea, and we heard about the Jordan River, and we heard about how you defeated the kings on the other side of the Jordan River. Those great kings, Sichon and Og. It's amazing. I thought that in the past, people, information didn't spread so, so, so well. I thought that, you know, we live in the information age. You can get anything. But I guess that, you know, that uh, maybe, I, uh, maybe I was wrong, or maybe, you know, they had better spreading of information there than in other places. And she said, we're terrified. We have no, we have no hope. And in fact, in verse 11, there's a phrase that's used here. Vanishma, if you look at verse 11, Vayimasla vavenu, velo kama od ruach be'ishmipnechem. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more spirit in any man. And what Racha, what the Midrash says about this line is, what does this mean that there was no spirit in this man anymore? What it says is basically, it says like business dried up for her. That the men were so dispirited that they no longer wanted to, they no longer had the ability to engage in sexual acts. And that's sort of like, you know, the Midrash coming back to this whole tshuva process and who she was and who she will be, etc., etc. Okay? And now look what she asks. Viata, hi shavuna li bahashem. She says, I pray, swear to me by your God. Ki asiti machem chesed, vasitem gamatem in betavi chesed na unetatem li ot emet. She said, I did something kind to you. Quid pro quo. Anybody heard that phrase recently? <laughs> you should do kindly with my father's house and give me a true token, right? You should, I've done something kind for you, do something kind for me. I've saved your lives, do me a favor, save my life. Okay, that sounds like the, the tactical plan that you spoke about, Gary, and that's perfectly safe. You're supposed to save your life. You're supposed to not just, you know, give up and, and die. Then the, so the fact that she does them. And then she asks, She doesn't save my brothers and my, my father and mother and brothers and sisters, my whole, my whole family. I find that to be extremely interesting, which, which uh, let, let's talk about that. Anybody else find that fascinating? How come? So she's concerned more than just herself, yeah, for sure. That's that's definitely a hundred percent. Anybody else? It's just her community. It was her community, her family, 
So something, and we'll come back to more of it, but just to tease, we'll get there in a few minutes, but I can't tell you that I've interviewed and I know from experience, but generally, at least what you, know, you read in the news or what you hear about, most people who are in the oldest profession are not necessarily you know, going home at night and speaking with their parents. They've been kidnapped, trafficked, sold, right? They've been, you know, whatever, whatever it is, they have addiction to drugs and therefore they've gotten into this, the business of, of prostitution. But these are not usually people who, at least in that point in their lives, are sitting there, you know, calling their mom and calling their dad and going home for Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is. So it's fascinating to me that on the one hand, this is the profession which she has, but at the same time, she's in contact with her entire family. Now, I can say I never did a PhD on uh, prostitution in the, Eastern, in the um, ancient Near East. I probably won't. I don't know that anybody else has, um, if anybody wants to fill their time. But um, to me, that's a very, just a very strange thing because that's not usually you know, what we would put together. But again, it's thousands of years later and maybe we're looking at it differently. Yes, please. It's also that she did the action of saving them before she negotiated with them. Yes. Yes, 100%. She first acts for them. She does something for them. And she says, I did something for you. Can you do something for me? And they could have just said, sorry. And they could still at this point say sorry, right? I guess she could, she could quickly, you know, alert the king. But yes, 100%. She does, she acts righteously, maybe tactically righteous, but she still acts righteously. And one thing I've learned to write in, in Jewish life, we like to think about people should do things what's called lishma. For the, for the right reasons, you know what? Just do what's right. Who cares about the ulterior motives? There's so many people who are doing things that are not so good. But yes, 100%, I agree with that. Anybody else thoughts about that or thoughts about what we said before? Okay, let's go. So look at verse 14. So the men said, our lives are, are yours, right? You, you saved us. Chesed they said when, when um, God gives us the land, we will act with kindness and with truth to you as well. This is a phrase that's used here a couple of times, chesed ve'emet. Generally, that phrasing is we talk about has to do with death. But here it's not really talking about death. Here it's talking about life. That's usually the phrase that's used for a chevra kadisha, for the burial society. That's the ultimate act of kindness because you cannot be, you cannot be repaid. Right? If I buy you a soda, then you can buy me a soda the next day. I don't know if we're doing any, each other favors by buying each other sodas, but you could do me a favor back. You can, you can pay it back to me as opposed to somebody else. The person who's dead, they cannot pay it back. But here, that's not the way the phrase is, is, uh, is used. So it says here just what, what goes on. So she lets them down by a court through the window for her house was upon the side of the wall. And where did she dwell? She lived in the wall. Okay? And then the men say, okay, thank you. You've, you've left us free. And um, let, let's stop there, and then we'll come back afterwards. Okay? So I want to make a, just a few points here and a few ideas and a few thoughts just a, about it. I started to talk a little bit about it, about the, the idea of her being a, a prostitute, but, but being in contact with her entire family. Um, 
It's not usually, you know, the type of job, I don't know, you get together with your friends. You say, my daughter is a doctor, my, my son is a lawyer. Different, 100% a different culture. And like I said, I never did a PhD or even a master's thesis on prostitution in the ancient Near East, but yeah. Presentizing it. You can't presentize. Or just, is this sort of, Yes and no. The culture, we know the culture is different. 100% the culture is different, and that's what's, what's interesting. But I want to talk about this last phrase in, in, in verse 15 a little bit. She, she lets them down through the window because her house was in the wall, and she lived in the wall. That's where she lived. So on the one hand, that phrase is being said because it's telling us where she lives, how then the men can easily escape. She lets them down through a rope. The Midrash says that this is part of her tshuva. She used those ropes in sexual acts, and now she's using it to save people. And so, um, but, but she's living in, in the wall. She's living in the outside, okay? Does anybody uh, know the story of Elisha and the woman of Isha Hashunamit? There's a story, or if you're listening to... Uh, uh, or reading the, the new uh, Margaret Atwork book, one of the main characters is Shunamite. I can't remember how it's, or how, how it's uh, pronounced, but right? There's the story of this great prophet that we have uh, 500 years after this, Elisha. And he would travel around the country doing his miracles. His great teacher was Elijah. And he would visit very often into a town. And this woman would say, oh, you always come to my town. So what I can do for you is I can build you. I'll build you a little, uh, I'll finish my attic for you. Is how we would say it today if we can presentize the, the Torah. I'll finish, finish my attic for you. So she finishes her attic. She doesn't tell him he has to pay the bill. And he would come and he would sleep in her house. And he says, you know, you've been very nice to me. Is there something I can do for you? And the phrase that she says back to him is, I just, I'm just, you know, you don't have to do anything special for me. You don't have to do anything different for me. I'm just, a, I'm just part of the people. I'm just betocha mi anochi yoshevet. I'm just a regular Jewish woman, like that Israelite, like this Israelite. She doesn't have any children. He gives her a blessing, and she has a child, etc., etc. And there are all sorts of interesting stories. But you think of that phrase to me, I think about that phrase in reference to this phrase, where this is a woman who's living bachoma. She's living in the wall. She's not living amongst the people. She is, in so many ways, an outcast. She's not the regular person. Again, I can't presentize, but I'm going to guess that even back then, prostitution was probably not the number one job. That was not, you know, what you did. That was more of a desperation. You probably get arrested for it. You probably get arrested for it. So the wall says she's neither in nor out. So she's sort of living in this liminal or this in-between space. She's, she's, she's living somewhere where nobody else is living. She's on the outsides of society. She's clearly part of Jericho, but she's not really part of the Jericho community. She's the place where the men come to when they want to be secretive, when they want to be hidden, when they don't want their girlfriends or their wives or whoever it is or their buddies to know about it. She's living in this secret space by herself. That's also part of the reason why her name is. Right? Names in the Bible are very important. Her name is Rachav. Rachav means a street, right? She's a woman of the night. She's a woman on the street. She's a street. Anybody can walk down that street. That's why she's given that name. I don't know if that was really her name. We don't know in the characters in Tanakh if those are their real names or their names are indicative 
of, uh, of, of, of their personality or their job, like you said before, you know. Um, but that's, that's the name that she has. It's indicative of who she was and where her standing is. So she's not living betochami. She's not living amongst the people. We're being told, right? Uh, we're being told that she lives, that's where she lives. And really, if you look at that phrase in verse 15, just look back at it, the phrase could have read, she let them down by the rope through the window, for her house was upon the side of the wall. It didn't have to say those last few words, and she dwelt upon the wall. Like that's, you know, it's fairly obvious. I think it's trying, what, what it's trying to do, if we're trying to, to understand this, on the, you know, do some literary analysis, it's trying to tell us something about where she is in society, where people think of her, where she feels that she belongs, and she doesn't feel like she belongs amongst the people of Jericho. That may be the reason why, part of the reason why she's so easy to, um, I'll get you one second, right? It's not just tactical. I believe that the Israelites are going to take over this land. We heard about all the miracles that your God has given to us, but also the people who are going to go and choose that side are not going to be, you know, the prime minister of Jericho. It's going to be the person who is living in the wall, the person who's on the outskirts of society, the person who's distant, the person who's disenfranchised, the person who's, who has to, who, who's suffering. And that's who, who Rachav is. She's living Bachoma. She's on the outskirts. She's on the outside. She's not part of the regular community. Yeah, let me, Felix, and then well, it, it occurs to me that perhaps she's not part of the Jericho society for reasons other than her profession. I think her profession was much more accepted in those days, and men had a great deal of privilege and could do pretty much what they wanted. But they, of course, would want to practice some level of discretion about it. Uh, and I, I think perhaps... She was apart from that society because politically or, or some other socio-political reason, she uh, disagreed with what was going on in Jericho. It's certainly possible. It's a, a valid interpretation, 100%. Well said. No, that's it's interesting to think of from a political science more perspective that's not the way that that I was ever I ever thought of looking at but very fascinating and interesting way to to think of it and certainly she has an issue we could we'll see that maybe a little more slightly in Rashi yeah and I forgot your name you said it before Lisa, Lisa. yeah it's uh, the contrast in 25 it says that she dwelt in the midst of Israel yes what well, Lisa points out to this is from this is um um if you look down there which uh which verse were you you 25. Okay, yeah. So this is this is the end, right? Ve'et, just look down at that where the 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 uh, the last the English and the last with the English and Hebrew side by side there. Ve'et Rachav Azona ve'et Beit Avir ve'et Kol Asher La Hecheya Yoshua v'Teisha Bekerev Yisrael Ad Hayom Azeh. But Rachav the harlot in her father's house and all that she had did Joshua save, and she dwelt in the midst of Israel until this day. And the reason is because she hid the the messenger. So she goes from being the person who is on the outskirts, on the outside, disenfranchised to just being a regular person. We'll come back to that, but I feel like you already know where I'm going to come back to with that, Lisa. Yeah, Anya. So when I read it, I, I like your interpretation better, but when I read it, I was thinking that she lived on the outskirts of the city where people would 
first come in or last leave, you know, like the wall at the, at the entrance of the wall. And therefore, for someone in her business, that was a good place. To that was de definitely, it's a tactical place to have your business. It's a good place for marketing. If somebody's coming up to the city, the first thing they see is, uh, right. you know, you can think of your own titles. <laughs> I think that, that, that I think that there's truth to, to all of that. I think that there is part of it is, yes, that is where that's where she's, you know, whether it's only an inn, you know, you're driving, you're, you're, you're pulling into to a city, and you know, that says on the road, you know, it's so important, the location of hotels. Today, maybe it's a little less important because you, you book your hotel in advance online and all this and all that. But imagine, you know, 50 years ago on your first uh, road trip somewhere, where where the position of the hotel was, or where the position of the, you know, where the, the House of the Rising Sun again was, where, where, that, where that is. And so, yes, yeah, so 100%, that is, that is correct. But yes, I think that there is this second thing that it's, we're, we're trying to say about it also. Well, I'm getting a little uncomfortable with the humor about prostitutes, uh, because what I know about people who are in prostitution is very often they've been abused. And it isn't just that they chose this lifestyle because it was fun, it's they were abused. Uh, also, the, who is it, isn't it Jacob who sleeps with his daughter-in-law? Do I have the wrong person? It's, it's, it's Judah. Right, Judah. Okay. Judah. Yeah, sleeps with his daughter His twice former daughter-in-law. Thinking that she's prostitute. a prostitute. So, so, so the status may be different. The status for sure is, is, is different. The other thing that is really striking me is this is the ongoing theme from the prophets of taking the side of the outsiders, the outcasts, the strangers. I mean, it's a really lovely statement about, about the importance of people who don't fit in. Yeah, I mean, some of, I think that it's very compelling. I think it's very important. I think that's a lot of what sort of Lisa said, that this was somebody who was on the outskirts who could then be living Bekerev Yisrael. I didn't mean to be flippant to your earlier point and part of, you know, what we're trying to, we'll, we'll see where we go with that. But, but, but it's, Joshua's taking her, Joshua's taking her side, 100%. Right, so we'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually also, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there, you know it, but we'll, we'll get there anyway. Oh. Was there a question also that I was, uh, no, no, but, but no, but you're, 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 you're part of, yes, whether it be Tamar, who is thought of, right? The reason why it says that she, it's the strange thing, the story of Judah who sleeps with his twice former daughter-in-law. The, the story there is that um, she marries her, he marries his first son, to this woman Tamar, and his first son is bad, so he, he, God does, he says he's evil and he dies. So she, she marries him to the second son. And the second son doesn't want to name his son after his brother. So he spills his seed. That second son is named Onan, which is where the word Onanism comes from. So Judah says, oh, this is terrible. This woman, she's a husband killer. So she says, listen, I have a third son. His name is Shayla. His name is Shayla because Shayla in Hebrew is like the same thing as Shelah. She's his. And Judah says, you know, he's kind of young. So you, you just like go home. And, you know, when he, uh, you know, passes through puberty, we'll call you back. So she waits a year and two and three. We don't know exactly how long, four, five, six. Her phone never rings. 
<laughs> right? Because Judah believes that Tamar has killed her sons. And so when she hears he's coming to her town, she, hot, she covers her face like she's a prostitute, which again, is like not the image that we see of Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. The idea is she, he thinks she could be a prostitute. Her face is covered. He doesn't see his twice former daughter-in-law. And right then eventually in that story, when he doesn't have money to pay her, I don't like to carry cash anywhere. I like to have a credit card. Judah didn't like to carry cash either. So he had his staff he could give her and her signet ring. And then when she becomes pregnant and Judah's like, she's pregnant, this is amazing. I can give her the death penalty and then I don't have to marry her to son number three. This is my way out. My son can marry somebody else. I'll have children. I'll have grandchildren. They'll call me Zadie. All the things they used to do in the ancient Near East, right? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning. He sends him the stuff, and that's when... He, when he sees that it's he's the, the person, he, that was the woman that he slept with, he says, Sadkabi many, you're more righteous than I. It seems to be a comment about everything. I thought you were the problem. You were really the one who's more righteous. So, so that, that guy's, and it's an interesting, it's something else to think about. We're talking about this idea of prostitution. One of the things, she's always called Rachav Hazona. She's always called Rachav the prostitute. But in these passages... There is nothing negative that's mentioned about the idea that she was a Zona. Later on, if we study Isaiah, Isaiah will talk about the Jews and say, you are like uh, adulterers and prostitutes. You are, you are, you know, you don't listen to God. You don't listen to even your leaders, your priests, your uh, rabbis. And have rabbis back then, your prophets are fake. And he, he excoriates people for being adulterous, for being, for being like prostitutes, for being, you know, we leave God. But here, there is no value judgment on her behavior. That's one of the fascinating things about this chapter is, is that idea that in a profession, which we understand today, generally most of the people are victims, have been trafficked. I imagine some choose, but, but that's at least, you know, and I can't say I'm an expert in this, this, this area. But back then, the, the judgment is not made about her. There's no willing, there's no, like what Lisa points out, she goes from, she's living on the outskirts, in the wall, she's not part of anybody, to she's living care of Yisrael. Why? Because she hid the messengers that Joshua, nobody said, ah, you know what? We don't need Yericho's trash. We don't need this, who's this person that's being saved? We don't need her. How is she going to contribute to our people? Look at what she was, look at who she was. Right, nobody, that, that's not what's said. And that's, you know, and that's part of what's, you know, amazing about this, uh, about this story um, is that transformation of this person. Um, we talked, you know, we started what we talked about, and then we'll come to a couple of other things. We, we started by talking about this idea of tshuva. And one of the laws of tshuva is, is that you're not allowed to remind a person of their past sins. You know, you have a lot of people, <laughs> they, become, uh, they become holy rollers, <laughs> and you see them, and you think last week they were having, you know, uh, you know think whatever, whatever could be the worst sin in your mind, that's what they were doing, and now they have, 
found God, and now they are the most uh, devout, religious, moral, ethical person in the world. And maybe they're being a little bit annoying also, and you just want to say, uh, don't tell me what to do. I remember two weeks ago when you were X. That you're not allowed to do. You can't remind a person of their past misdeeds, of their past sins. Her name remains Rachav Hazona. She's identified that, right? Like, look at verse 25. Yet Rachav Hazona. That's the way she's identified. She's living amongst the Jewish people. But nevertheless, that is the way that she is identified. That's the same verses that's on the bottom of the, the page. That's actually from chapter 6 when she is, when she is uh, saved. So that's the way she is described. But it's not with a value judgment that she is lesser, she has sinned, she has done things wrong. The Midrash, as the Midrash does in the Gemara and other places, we'll see in a second, creates all sorts of you know, stories about how good she was at her profession, but it does not, but, but in the text of the Tanakh, there is no, we're not saying that she is a sinner because of this. We are judging her based upon her um, ability to save Israel. So if we look at this woman, whether we want to go from a socio-political, she's living in the wall, whether we want to say that it's from, in part from a marketing business strategic place, that that's where it is, but it's also about who she is in society, that she is disenfranchised. She's on the outskirts. She's not part uh, uh, of regular society. She's the place where people, when they want to be in the shadows, when they, yes, they have more power than men do today, but still, you know, it's, it's, it's still cheating on your wife, on your girlfriend. It's still, you know, maybe not in the same way we think of it today, but it's still not the reputable profession. And, but nevertheless... Right? She's able and she's willing, she's able to become part of the, of, the, uh, of the Jewish people. Did you want to say something more about that? Or, yeah. Another Tamar parallel. Yeah. Okay. So, when uh, it says, uh, they ask him to do this kindness for her and to give me a trustworthy countersign. Yeah. Right? The same as. Uh, the same as, as, as Tamar. Right. Yes, there, there are definitely parallels between the, between the two stories. There's another thing that's interesting here, which, which, which happens, which is if you look at verse um, 18, at verse 19, excuse me, we, we skipped over this verse. We got sort of here and there and back and forth. And that. If you look at verse 19 there, right, what does, she, what does he say to them? So he tells them at the end of 18 and 19, the, 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 the two um, unidentified spies, it's kind of interesting, I never thought about it. The spies are not identified, and the rabbis try to identify who they are. And maybe part of the reason they're not identified is they go, right? They're going to, they're, they're going to the, the whorehouse. They're going to, so it's, it's sort of like in character that when you go there, you are hidden, you are secretive. So we don't know who they are, but what do they say to her? They say to her, gather your whole family, and it shall be that whoever shall go out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and he will be guiltless. Right? Everybody who, you, Rachav, we're going to save you, but the people from your family who are going to be saved, they need to be in your house. What does that remind you of? The angel of death, the carbon Pesach, which is this fascinating thing. It's like Rachav, to an extent, her and her family are undergoing, in part, some sort of paschal ceremony. There's no lamb. 
There might not be any blood. There'll be blood of the people of Jericho on the outside. But they're told if they want to be saved, they need to stay inside the house. They can't go out. So maybe it has to do with the, it's not the angel of death, although, right, we know the story of Jericho. The walls fall down, and, the, and it's a sort of a miraculous uh, battle. And, um, but, um, but they need to stay in the house. They're almost like, you know, I'm not saying there was a conversion uh, uh, there was, uh, right today, if somebody wants to convert to Judaism, there are steps that you have to take, there are things you have to do, you have to go to the mikvah, the ritual bath. I'm not saying back then there was, but it's almost like she is undergoing, in a sense, something very, very similar to what the Jews did, that during this decisive moment, she's going to be hidden in the house. She's going to be in this intimate, small space, the same way that Many of the Jews who she will now become part of their community, Joshua, for one of them, was in his house with his family some 40 years earlier, told if you go outside, you're not gonna, you may not survive the night. So it's, 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 you know, if she's really becoming part of the Jewish people and she was living outside, disenfranchised from Jericho and from her community, all of a sudden she's being put into a house where she's hidden and she's sort of undergoing in a certain sense some sort of transformation that equates her with the rest of the Jewish people. So that to me is a parallel that, that I find extremely fascinating. I don't even know what to make of it other than what I said, but I find it fascinating. Yeah? I'm not clear exactly. Are you referring to the plague of, of the killing of the firstborn? The firstborn, yes. During the, at that time, the killing... Right, yes. So she's... Be, she, interesting, because here it says, thou shalt, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window. Very good, right. And, and, uh, and yes, I should have said that, that aspect as well. Right, they're telling her to do that. The symbolic, the, 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 it's there together. Right, and that's supposed to be a sign for the soldiers of Israel that that's the place that you can't destroy. So the, the parallel is, is very, very strong. You know, it's, it's... She doesn't stay in the wall. She goes to her father's house. Right. They're, they're, which, is a different which is a different place, but they're inside. They're, in, they're inside. They're, they're in a home. They're, they're, in a, they're, they're together, and they're undergoing some sort of transformative process. We don't know what it is, but it's, it's transformative to us because it recalls the Paschal Lamb. It recalls the Jews in Egypt hiding in their houses with symbols on their door that she goes through the same thing. So to me, it's, it's fascinating. And it, it's just saying, like, she is really... She writes, when, when David is marrying women, when David is marrying women who are not of the Jewish faith, the Israelite faith or persuasion, when Solomon is marrying his thousand wives, yes, we'll be told that Ruth converts to Judaism. I don't know that they went to the, the mikvah. I don't know that all those things happened. But here, there seems to be that for Rachav and her family to join the Jewish people, the Israelites, whatever you want to call them, she has to undergo something which binds her to them. Most of that right generation has died out. The kids maybe from that generation are still alive, but she fast, she goes through. And it's, it's, to me, it's, it's this, right? It comes back to this, and we'll get there, that she's going from being on the outside to being the inside. She's a regular person. She's in her house. She's with her family. And they, of course, are saved. And then she is Bekerev Yisrael. She is, she is with the, she's with the, you know, the Israelites as, you know, as, 
as well. Uh, I, if you turn on to the last page, we sort of gotten to some of these things before, and we'll talk about some other things and some other aspects, some other uh, pieces. Uh, I just there are two basic ways as to understanding who this woman was. Who is Rachel? And we mentioned that. If you look at, at uh, on the top of that page, we have a source from Rashi, of course, the great French medieval uh, scholar um, who lived from 1040 to 1105. And what he says is, in explaining that she was a zona, he says, Mizonot punkadita, mocheret mizonot. He quotes the Targum Yonatan. This is another place where the line got reversed. I don't know why. But he says she was an innkeeper. And what part of that is coming down to in terms of understanding of who she was is it's an understanding that these spies, these righteous people who were sent out by Joshua, there is no way that the place where they went in Jericho was to the whorehouse. This, this book, the stone has grosser as an alternative. Okay, so that's, that's what it's saying. And what that's doing just linguistically, so you should know, what it's trying to do is the word zona, which means a prostitute. There's no, there, but what it's trying to do is it's trying to say that Zona sounds like mazon. They don't come from the same root. They don't come from the same root. You can make jokes about that, unfortunately, also we know. But they don't come from the same root. They have both a zayin and a nun in them. So they both have that zon, but, the, the, um, but they don't come from the same root. But that's where Rashi, it's where the Targum Yonatan is trying to take it from. It's trying to say these spies who, of course, were these great religious ritual men, you know, they would have never gone there where... You know, and that's, that's this perspective. And what that's doing in terms of the story, it doesn't make the story as strong, right? It doesn't, all this entire discussion that we had, okay, she was an innkeeper in Jericho. She hid these men. She was very brave. She resisted against the, 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 the king. She was extremely brave. She was courageous to save the lives of these men. She was tactical. She was smart. She had her in. She had the first sign up as you got to the town. There's a store in Colorado. It's Steamboat Springs. I live in Colorado. It's a big ski town. If anybody's ever been there. If you've ever driven there, there's a store there, FM Light and Sons. It's been around for about 120 years. And about 50 miles before you get to Steamboat, you start to see the signs for FM Light and Sons. And when I was driving there in the summer, my six-year-old daughter, she, we, I said, oh, good idea. You have nothing to do in the car for the next two hours. Count the signs. I don't remember the amount of time, but it's, this, it's almost like you're uh, going on a pilgrimage and you have to go to the store if you've been there because you saw 60 signs about this store. So she's a smart marketing woman. Her inn is at the front. She's got the big sign. She, it's not the same. It's a story about a woman who's courageous, but she's a regular woman. She's an innkeeper. She's a businesswoman at a time that maybe never, maybe not so many women have businesses. There, there are lots of angles and interesting things we can go with it. But the other way of understanding it is completely, is completely different. I cited this verse from, um, from uh, this idea um, from Masechet Zvachim um, uh, earlier. Let's just read it in the English. This is on those phrase, if you remember, it said that, that all the men have lost their, their, their spirit. Um, so just looking at the English, and this is from the, the Talmud, this is the second way sort of understanding the way we've been looking at it much more. Um, she implied that they even lost their virility, excuse me. How did she know this? How did she know that the men, well, <laughs> if this was her job, then she would know, presumably. Mar says there wasn't a prince or king who didn't come to Rachav the prostitute. They said Rachav was 10 years old when Israel left Egypt, and she whored herself for 40 years while the Israelites wandered the wilderness. At the age of 50, she converted and said, may I make repentance by the merit of the cord, the window, and the flax. 
So this is a story, right? This seems to be much more a judgment call about who she was and what she was, but at the same time, she was only 10 years old. Now, I know 10 years old then is not 10 years old today, but you're still a child at that time. But it's, what it's trying to do is parallel Israel and her. Israel were babies. They left Egypt. She was a baby. She was a young child. She was only 10 years old. And the way it makes it sound right, every prince, every person who, every king, everybody had visited her. And what it's trying to do, it's less about literal understanding of that's who she is. It's trying to say that she went from being the most wicked of the wicked, 40 years of, of, of sexual impropriety to being the most righteous for willing to, to put her, her neck out on the line is, is what she became. And so the difference between these two sources, is she just a simple innkeeper or on the most extreme, not just seeing her as just simply a prostitute in, in Jericho, but you know, creating this image of her as being, you know, the prostitute of prostitutes, for lack of a, of a, of a better phrase, that's the rabbis trying to extend and, and, and really stretch out how incredible of a turn this was, how gadola her tshuva was, how incredible her repentance was. Yeah? It also is, Very good. She, yes, that's very interesting because, right, you can... Um... In terms of good spycraft, that's exactly where the spies should have gone. Oh, so yeah, for sure. Find out what was yeah, they find out information. People will be there. People say things, you know, that they wouldn't necessarily say, and it's a place where they can be, be hidden. So it makes a lot of sense for them to go, right? And looking at it, right, there's... It's just Rashi is... What Rashi is doing is he's taking a very sort of... Um, from the Targum Yonatan... A, a sort of a, a religious view of the story. These are holy men, they wouldn't go there. But the, the, the story is, is a realistic story. And the spies are gonna go to a place where they can get into and where they can you know, hide. And again, it doesn't work, but that's part of the story, part of the, right? If you think the story existed, if you didn't think the story was, if you don't believe the story ever happened, then it makes sense that of course the king finds out right away because then she can become the heroine. And if you believe the story happened, well, then the story happened. And for whatever reason, they also, they come in there in the same way everybody else, you know, talks up what they're doing there. They accidentally slip tongue and the, the word gets back to the king. So they don't do the best job of being spies, but maybe there's a reason behind that. Yeah, Felix, please. What do you, where, where are you getting the, the permission from? I'm sorry. May I make repentance? Okay. And, and, and she said, may I make repentance? Who needs, that's asking permission. No? Yeah, yeah. Um, let me just look back. Um, so I'm, it's I'm, translation. Yeah. It's translation, or, or was she a different... She had to use from trying to present to a column, yeah, Shana. So, so the word that's actually in the Hebrew, and, and I probably took this somewhere, so I apologize, is, is the word is that repentance is, not the, is, is a terrible translation of this Gemara Masechet Zvachim, so I apologize for that. The real word that it should, should say here is it says nitgaira, which means to convert. So what it says, so, so, so repentance is a bad translation. My apologies to your listeners out there. So the, the real word is she's saying, have I got, you're right, you're right. Have I gone too far that I cannot repent? That I cannot, sorry. 
<laughs> there you go. That I cannot become part of the Jewish people. I've gone too far. That's what that's what this 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 line is 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 saying. So let's let's look. I'm going to read to you from the Hebrew this last line of the yeah. But please, yeah. That she's addressed as Rachav, the harlot, and not the former harlot, not the repentant harlot, not the saved harlot, who's now the pretty woman married to what's his name? Richard Gere. <laughs> We've all seen that one. Come on. If, if and again, the we real name. are all created in the image of God, she's she's in the image of God. She's in the image of God. Whether she's repentant mm -hmm. or not. I mean, she's a valuable, <laughs> uniquely valuable human. Well, we have these ideas in Jewish life, right? That that, and it's not only in Jewish life. I think just generally, right? We live we live alive fifty years, eighty years, a hundred years. But there are critical moments in our lives, right? So she was in a. Yeah. Let's say it's probably not the most desirous of positions, okay? Back then, we're not talking about today. But at this critical juncture in her life, she ended up, because of the decisions, maybe they were terrible decisions. The, the, the Gemara Mzvachim is saying they were terrible decisions. They said for 40 years, every prince, every king, anybody who was anybody and anybody who was nobody came and visited her. But she has a critical moment in her life where everything that's happened in the past does not matter. And that's what's, what's important. So the fact that she's Rachav Hazona, it doesn't matter. Right. Yes, I know it sounds weird. We talked earlier, right? You can't remind somebody of what they did wrong. It sounds like we keep on saying and keep on saying it, but, but that's not, because it's not a value judgment on who she is. And in terms of the story, if she turned in the spies, and, you know, it, all sorts of things might have happened. In a shorter but... book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I keep going back and forth, though, Thinking of her as a really good, righteous, smart woman, smart in, in a more spiritual sense, and and on the other hand, a very practical um, woman who who takes the most expedient route to survival for herself. Yeah, I mean, I think both can be true, and I mean, this moment of conversion was at about the time she was what fifty years old. According to this piece of Midrash, yeah. We, we have no real idea as to how old she was or wasn't, but yeah. Perhaps, you know, as a prostitute, 50 years old in those days, maybe... Not so so still <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, I, I know what you're saying, um, 100%, but uh, it's, you know, that we don't know exactly how old she was or wasn't, whether she was at that point, you know, the, the owner or whether she was uh, still... Um, with the customers or, or that sort of thing. That we, we don't know any of that, and we don't know her exact age. The Midrash is, is putting this, and I think what it's trying to do is to, is to right, she's mirroring Israel, is what it's trying to do by saying she was 10 when they left Egypt, and she for 40 years, and they for 40 years. They were wandering in the desert. She was wandering in terms of being a, in terms of being a prostitute as opposed to, but, but at this key moment is the moment in her life where she makes a decision, which is a, a decision uh, that, that, reverberates, and we'll see in a second, for generations. Yeah? Contemporary to what? It's, it's, um, it's the ordinary person doing extraordinary things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's, what this, that's what this moment is. I'm going to read to you. This is, again, some reason the, the Hebrew got messed up. Um, I'm going to start from the middle of that line. 
again, right to left and left to right at the same time, but it's, it's in English anyway. And this is, you know, this is, and we'll finish with the, the last part, last source, which we, we, or idea about it afterwards, but it says, Shmona Nevi'im beheim koanim yatsu rachav hazona. So, right, you talked about, she's always called Rachav Hazona. This is the Talmud. This is uh, 1,500 years after that. And she's still being called Rachav Hazona, but not to insult her. Yeah. She's being called to tell us that eight prophets who were also priests descended from Rachav, which is this amazing thing. Right, here it is. You know, uh, this is, you know, Right, you, you think about, uh, she's a prostitute. You don't know who the father is. You don't know who the this is. You don't know who the that, right? What is it saying? This woman, we don't care about who she was. She became part of the Jewish people and she was the mother of prophets. And it lists them. Who are those prophets? Ve'eluhein, Neria, Baruch, Sariah, Machasya, Yermia, Chilkia, Chanamel, Veshalom. And Rabbi Yehuda says also Chulda, also this woman prophet, Chulda was, was a descendant of, of Rachav. So she becomes, because of her willingness, because she goes into the house and she's got, like you said, the red, the red rope there, like the Jews had the red blood, and she's in the house and she saves the people at that time, she becomes the mother of prophets for the Jewish people. She's, not, she's, she's, she's on the inside. And as I think both of you over here referenced earlier, this piece of Gemara in Masechet Megillah goes on and it says... That in fact, she married Joshua. That's what the, the, the Talmud claimed. Do I know that she married Joshua? Do I know who she sat under the chuppah with? Who was the Masader Kedushin? Who did? The Talmud says that Rachav married Joshua. And it comes from where it says that, that, uh, that you know, Joshua hecheya, Joshua kept her alive, which just means that as opposed to everybody else in Jericho, we're not talking about that tonight, who was killed, that he kept her alive. The Talmud understands that, no, that he actually married her, which is this amazing thing. I had somebody one time I was teaching this who said to me, said to me, I find it really unfair. The bad girls always get <laughs> what they want was a very funny sort of comment that she, that, that she made. But the, what I should have said to her and didn't at the time, because I was sort of laughing at the way she, you know, she said it, is that the whole point is, is Rachav is not a bad girl. She's not a sinner. She's not evil. She hasn't done anything wrong. She was disenfranchised. She was on the outskirts. She was living in the wall. She wasn't part of the community. She was uh, on the street. But when she enters Beker of Yisrael, when she goes through this transformative process, when she's willing to come to become part of the Jewish people, she can even marry Joshua. So yes, I know she couldn't marry a Kohen, okay? She can marry the leader of the Jewish people. And that says so much about who our people should aspire to be. We'll come back to that, but yeah. I want to say yay for the converts. Yay. It's, it's a yay for the converts, but it's yay for anybody can be anyone. We don't care. We're not asking those sort of questions. This is who you were. It's who you are and what you did and you can become. And it's, it's an incredible you know, lesson. You think about you know, certain, certain places in the Jewish community where you know, it's so important, you know, uh, who your parents are and who your this is and who your that is and are you going to get married? And I'm, we say the Hasidim, it's not just the Hasidim. You know, it, it's, in, it's in all communities. In some communities, it might be about how much money the parents have. And so it might be these things. And this is saying, let us, we're going to judge, right? Because I don't really, I don't really believe that Yoshua married Rachav. There's no source for it in the Tanakh. 
This is coming from Midrashim 2,000 years later. And I think what it's all about, the Midrash is trying to teach us, or about 1,500 years later, whatever, is trying to teach us an incredible lesson about how our communities are supposed to be structured or you can say how they're not structured. That, that the leader of the Jewish people would marry this woman, right? <laughs> Imagine the, the controversy that would come out today. I don't know who would be the, the Yehoshua, you know, I don't know if that would be uh, President Rivlin or the non-existent prime minister of the state of Israel. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is the leader of the Jewish people is marrying this foreign woman who for the last number of years has served as a prostitute. Uh, it's absurd, but that's the whole point. That it is there, yeah, for sure, yeah. Well, she really accepted the God of Israel. She had the foresight and the understanding yeah. that this was the real God that, and that the land was going to become. Yes, 100%. She was smart, and the other people didn't realize that. Even and then she also had the ability to um, present her story you know, to the authorities. It was a pretty stressful thing, and she made a convincing. She, she <laughs> acted. She made a convincing thing. In fact, some of the words that she uses, if you look back in verse 11, I don't know if we remember, if we, we read this verse, but you, you would know these words. She says in there, Ki Hashem Elokechem, that's not in Hua Elokim Bashamayim Me'al Va'ala Aretz Mitachat. So if you ever sang Aleinu at the end of Shul, right? right? These are words that are in Aleinu. They're slightly changed, but they're coming from Rachav. So, so, so words that are said in synagogue service multiple times a day, we finish every service with Aleinu, are coming from Rachav. According to traditional Jewish understanding, Moses wrote the first part of Aleinu. And Yoshua wrote this, Joshua wrote the second part, and this is, this is actually the end of the first part, but it would make sense that, that that would come from Joshua, and that's part of the reason, right? Who are we citing? We're citing every day. Ki Hashem hu Elohim, Bashamayim mitachat. Then we add, I believe, the words ain't owed, but, you know, but, but that's, 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 this is, this is, you know, in the text, who is saying these words is, is Rachav Hazona. And so it, it, to me, it's this incredible idea when we talk about the book of Joshua is a very challenging book in the contemporary period. If you've read the book, if you haven't read the book, it's a challenging book. It's battles and wars and genocide and death and killing. And, you know, yes, the sun doesn't set or whatever. You know, there's some nice stories here and there, but the most interesting character to me and the person who, if we look at this book and we think about one incredible place and lesson that we can take out of this book, to me, it's, it's this story and it's this character. It's this person who is completely disenfranchised, this person who is on the outskirts, who's living in the wall, who's not living amongst her people, who's so easy to turn, right? If you've got the great job and things are great for you, you're not going to so easily turn away from your, from your country, from your fellow citizen, from your fellow people. You're going to feel a sense of nationality, nationalism, joy, pride in who you are, where you grew up. But because she's on the outskirts, it might be easier for her to so quickly and easily you know, become part and parcel and, and uh, ally herself with the Jewish people. But then the construction that the Midrash makes of her, not only that she lives Bekerev Yisrael, when before she was on the outskirts in the wall, but that she 
is taken in. She's part of the Jewish people. She marries Joshua. She's the mother of multiple prophets. Really says something about our tradition. There's somebody else. I'll, I'll get to you in one second. Felix would say, say this as well in a completely different line in the Talmud, in a completely different place. But it says, it's similar. It says, B'nai banav shel haman lamdu b'b'nei brak. And I don't remember exactly what it says, and I might get the words. But it says that like the great-grandchildren, the, the descendants of Haman, were studying in yeshiva. I mean, last time I checked, Haman and his 10 sons were hanging. But maybe he had some daughters, maybe he had some sons who, who, who didn't hang. But, right, what are the, uh, it's this amazing line. Right, I thought he's from Amalek, they all need to be killed. No, his, even his children can become part of the Jewish people is what that line is saying. That, that we need to be welcoming. And they can sit in the yeshiva amongst the aristocracy of the Jews. They can be studying Torah. And so we have this woman, the outskirts of her society. We're not going to judge on that. We're not going to make value calls about who she was, how she got there, why she did this. She saves her family. Who knows if she's with her family. She's distant from her family, but she becomes part of our people. And that's an amazing, to me, amazing idea about this, this woman. Lisa, did you want to say something? Or there was somebody else who had their hand up? Yeah. She would not have met Moses because Moses would have died just chapters before this. On the other side of the river. She was 10 years old when, when the Israelites were freed from Egypt. That's according to this, this piece in the and Talmud, she yes. Wandered in the desert. No, she didn't wander in the desert. What I was saying earlier, sorry. What I was saying before was I was trying to say that the, that piece of Talmud is trying to mirror the Jews are wandering in the desert for 40 years. And she, in a sense, is sort of like a wanderer in that she is a prostitute and not living the life that she would become. But, she, okay, but so she's, uh, as far as we know, she's... she's living a life of a prostitute. She is living uh, in, on the outskirts of Jericho. Yes. Not wandering in the... No, 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 no. I'm sorry if I uh, confused no, you there before. Okay. Was, that, was that both the questions? So if you found this interesting, I'll just tell you, like I said earlier, and if you have another comment, there are, right, <laughs> there are stories in the Tanakh uh, uh, that are just fascinating, interesting stories about characters, about different people, about different relationships. And, and really, you know, this is a joint program between VBM and between our Project 929, and we have lots of wonderful and intriguing um, uh, just articles and pieces and pieces of art and and uh, you know we're we're happy to help you if there are people who want to study more and, and and create some sort of a chavura and a group here. But I thank you very very much for coming out this evening. Did anybody have a last uh, question or or we're good and we'll, we'll take it as is. Rav Shmuley, did you want to say anything? I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education 
in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.